0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Food Institute podcast, your exclusive source for interviews with leaders in the food industry. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, and this week has me thinking about how fast 2021 has really flown by. We're starting our New Year's resolutions a little bit early over here at the Food Institute, and we've got a fresh look for our website at foodinstitute.com, and you may have noticed some new intro music for the podcast as well really excited about this rebrand. We hope you visit us at foodinstitute.com to learn a little bit more about us. And you can also take a look at a bunch of our great content that we produce every single day. But just as one year closes, another one begins. And incidentally, that's also the topic of today's discussion. Lou Biscotti, Markham's Food and Beverage Service Leader, joins us today. And we're going to be taking a look at what he believes will be the biggest trends for the food industry in 2022. But before we get started there, I did want to thank Markham for sponsoring this video and lending us the talent for today's discussion. You can visit them at markhamllp.com. And if you look at the description of this video, you'll also see a direct link directly to their food and beverages division. You can learn a little bit more about their accounting and tax services and how that can help your company. I'm going to welcome Lou to the show now. How are you doing, Lou? Did you have a good Thanksgiving?
1: I'm doing very well, and Thanksgiving was great. It was nice to uh, share in-person events with family and friends. So uh, it's great to to be back in action.
0: I'm really glad to hear that. I'm feeling the same over here. And I know we're going to be talking a little bit about the future today. We're going to be taking a look at some 2022 trends, but before we dive into that, I think it would really be beneficial for our audience to get to know you a little bit more, Lou. So could you give us a brief background about yourself and maybe share a little bit more about Markham as well so that people can become a little more familiar with you?
1: Sure, thank you so much. Uh, So I've been, I'm a CPA uh, and have a master's degree. I've been working with food and beverage companies for probably 35 years. I had my own firm for many years before I merged uh, my firm into a larger firm. And I've probably worked directly with probably close to 200 food and beverage companies from farm to fork. Uh, Markham currently has 600 food and beverage clients from farm to fork. That's ag, it's manufacturers, distributors, retailers and eating and drinking facilities. So we, we go across the whole food spectrum. Uh, our team is 90 deep nationally, and we have regional leaders in each of the geographic areas of the country. We're number 14 in the U S uh, in terms of size uh, as an accounting firm. And we do everything from uh, classic uh, assurance services, tax services, a lot of advisory. We have our own technology company and, uh, very very deep into the food and beverage
0: industry. So Lou that real wide you know range of industries within the food industry really sets you guys apart at Markham and I think it's going to really help us today as we take a look at these 2022 trends. And the first thing I really want to talk about here today is just how inflation is hitting every aspect of the economy and the food industry really is no different. And in light of this and the current labor shortage situation, what types of technology do you really see coming to the food industry in the next few years? And how are they going to help out, you know, food manufacturing, food service, et cetera?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting you you mentioned the broad range. And uh, so you really need to look at all five sectors uh, that we we break down our food and beverage clients into. So, you know, so many changes for restaurants. uh, We have delivery models, whether they're drones, autonomous vehicles robots in the kitchen ghost kitchens uh certainly a lot of erp technology for inventory maintenance point of sale menu scheduling uh you know purchasing it's uh there's there's a lot going on for restaurants Uh, for manufacturers and distributors robotic picking systems are are very hot right now erp systems again uh, blockchain is important and you know with everything that's going on with supply chain supply chain ai and latest driverless trucks. So um, that's a pretty interesting one. For retailers, we have robots to stock shelves, pick products, cashierless stores, uh, AI for customer preferences and open to buy. You have smart refrigerators for consumers. So, you know, a lot going on in that particular area as well. And for ag, we have weed picking robots, vertical farming, which is projected to grow at 25% Kager. Moving forward, um, you know, you look at examples, Kroger teaming, <clears throat> excuse me, with tech company Okado to build robotic fulfillment centers, and Kroger is using artificial intelligence to suggest recipes right now. Uh, but with technology comes risks, and cyber is a big problem, and uh, I encourage everyone to get a, a cyber assessment. It's, it's so important today, and it can really take down a company. Also, there are wonderful tax incentives for research and development and uh, for technology. So I think that, you know, kind of talks about what I see coming up in the technology area in all of the uh, food and beverage sectors.
0: And it is kind of interesting. I think we're kind of at this inflection point, really, where labor and technology are starting to meet. And we've been talking about it for many years, but I think taking a look at these different technologies you're seeing, how do they work with human labor? Do you see it replacing it, supplementing it? How do you think that's going to kind of affect labor overall within the food industry in the next, you know, five years or so?
1: So I I think both, really. I think in certain cases, the lower level, less talented, uh, Jobs will be replaced, uh, but the advancements will provide you know more new technical jobs and will create efficiencies, which will reduce the labor shortages. So, I think it, it'll it'll work both ways. And as with any uh, industrial uh, advancements that we've seen in the past, the lower level mundane type jobs get replaced with robotics and different types of uh, computerized systems and stuff. So, I I think. The efficiencies will be better. It'll help with the labor shortages, um, but you know some jobs at the lower levels will be replaced, and people will have to be retrained in the new technologies. Uh, you know examples are you know delivery, stocking shelves, uh, cashiers, cooks, taking inventory, and picking and packing. These are all areas where I think you'll see a lot of technology improvements and uh, enhancements. That will require less labor.
0: Yeah, it's definitely an interesting little spot to be in there when you take a look at that and labor obviously is top of mind. But another thing the Food Institute tracked in 2021 that we think really will have an impact going forward is just how ESG is going to affect both, you know, boardrooms and also consumer sentiment. And I think, like I said there, I think it's a major mover for investors and consumers in the current day. So I was hoping you can detail your thinking on the evolution of ESG principles and how they're affecting food companies today and also probably more importantly in the days to come. So could you share your thinking on that?
1: Absolutely. I, I, you know, I think ESG is such a hot topic today and will continue to uh, really trend up in the future. And I think a lot of people may not be familiar with the acronym, you know, ESG. So environmental criteria. Uh, The E is it's waste and pollution, it's resource depletion, it's greenhouse gas emissions, deforestation, and climate change. That's all covered in environmental. The S is social criteria, which which really looks at how a company treats people, employee relations, diversity, working conditions, child labor, uh, local community funding projects, uh, and institutions that will serve the poor and underserved communities. Health and safety, that all comes under social. And then the G, governance criteria, which examines how a corporation really polices itself on tax strategy, remuner- remuneration, donations, uh, corruption, bribery, board diversity, and structure. So, you know, to expand on the E, our environment is a major issue today. Uh, greenhouse gas, gas and emissions, droughts and extreme weather, water shortages. And you know, by 2050, it's projected that we'll have more plastic in the ocean than fish, which is terrifying to me. Um, in addition, there's too little food to feed the world currently. And what's going to happen when the world population doubles, which is what it's projected in the future. Um, so food waste is a, is a big issue. One third of all food is wasted. And across the board, 21% is at farm level, 14% at manufacturers. Twenty-eight percent in eating and drinking facilities. By the way, seventy percent of restaurants have plate waste, um, and thirty-seven percent households. Uh, it's really split up between fruits and vegetables, which is you know perishables, cereals, and then dairy and meats and poultry. Um, it's important that we reduce food waste by not overproducing and by measuring it and by more innovative packaging. Uh, so you know Pepsi Pepsi talks about recycle reducing recycling and reinventing and Coca-Cola has its world without waste Nestlé plans to invest 3.6 billion over the next 5 years to battle climate change and promote sustainability Danone plans to invest 2.1 billion over the 3 years to transform packaging agriculture energy and operations so you know companies are really really serious about this. Um, perishable perishables deliveries from Amazon Fresh and Whole Foods Market will now come in curbside recyclable insulated paper packaging. So you know they they're, they're taking steps, and I would say sustainability in packaging is somewhat or very important for nearly 90% of consumers based upon you know research that's been taking, and and Brita. Uh, purified water multipacks uh, packaged in 100% aluminum containers that are now durable, reusable, and completely recyclable. So those are some of the examples of what companies are doing to respond to the environmental issues. I really didn't hit social and governance because it would be you know, too extensive to go through all of those.
0: Yeah, I would think environmental is probably the point that most consumers touch base with. I think the social aspect also plays into it, and maybe the governance is a little bit less uh, on the minds of consumers. But I think the thing that's really striking there is that listing you put out there. You know, these aren't just small mom-and-pop companies trying to make it a sustainable product. We're talking about some of the food industry's titans really making significant investments in the space so it's really kind of it's maybe surprising isn't the right word but definitely you know very different than when I first started covering the food industry where I feel this was more relegated to smaller you know smaller product types
1: absolutely and consumers are much much more uh, attuned to this right now than than ever before
0: i would agree and i think one of the things that we take a look at with ESG is that Uh, you know, desire to have less of an impact on the environment. And I think a lot of consumers right now are turning to plant-based foods. Maybe some are starting to take a look at cell-based products, you know, cellular uh, cultivated items, maybe more via the news at this point than from retail shelves. But I think there's a lot of interest in these two types of products. So I was wondering if you can give us an idea of what you think these, uh, you know, product categories are going to do in the next year. You think consumers are still going to gravitate towards plant-based? What about cell-based? You know, how do you see those two alternative proteins? categories faring in the coming year?
1: That's a great question. And um, there's been some leveling off lately of, you know, plant-based and cell-based is still, I think, in its infancy stages to a large degree. But I think both of these products will continue to grow, um, especially cell-based. I I think it'll catch on and and really start to take off. However, consumer education is still a must, especially for cell-based, because, but because of environmental concerns and the ability to feed the world in the future, both of these are really critical, uh, just like reducing food waste that I just mentioned before is very important. Um, so they'll expand in the future as ESG is you know, uh, top of mind for consumers. An IBM survey found that 80% believe sust- sustainability is important uh, to consumers. And nearly 60% of consumers would change their shopping habits to reduce environmental impact. So, you know, it, it very much feeds into the plant-based, cell-based um, you know, scenario. Also, uh, a recent study showed that four of 10 consumers purchased more plant-based products uh, since the start of the pandemic. And 64% of shoppers Follow a diet or health-related wellness program up from 49% in 2018. So this has really grown tremendously. Plant-based meats uh, projected to be $14 billion by 2027, growing at 19%. Nestle's has em- en- entered the market with the cultured meat. You have Slovenia-based uh, Juicy Marbles, Filet Mignon, uh, and the competition is fierce. You have Conagra, Kroger, Impossible Foods, and Beyond Meats. They're all you know, competing for this space. Um, Copenhagen's Geranium will, will make the move to a meatless menu starting in January. And probably the one that gets me most is lab-grown mouse meat cookies for cats.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I had not heard of that one yet, but it does not surprise me that we have something like that on the market. Um, it's interesting you know food institute's taking a look at the plant-based uh, category pretty much all year and there seems to be a lot of interest, but you know how big the category gets seems to be limited. We have you know research that shows that you know the predecessor to the plant-based meat was really the plant-based milks and they get to about 10 percent. so that's what we were thinking with the plant-based meat substitutes. But the one that's really interesting to me is the cell cultured meat. And when that becomes commercially available, it opens up so many questions regarding people's consumer preferences, really. So it'd be interesting to see how that one plays out in the coming
1: year. Yeah, I I think they'll both, you know, wind up being niche categories like much like, you know, non GMO and gluten free and but it's important. It's important for the, for the overall planet and feeding the world that these technologies take place and, and that we uh, help the environment simultaneously.
0: I would agree. And I think another one that I wanted to bring up, I know you had an article recently published, I believe in Forbes, uh, on frozen foods and how they became a mainstay for many consumers during the pandemic. So I'm wondering, you know, in a post-pandemic environment, do you expect that behavior to be sticky? What's your viewpoint on the current state of frozen food?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, fo- frozen foods at one time, you know, famous for TV dinners. I think some of, you know, the older folks listening uh, can relate to that. And they were not really healthy and, and nutritious, but it's turning into one of the hottest uh, items in the grocery aisles, offering cuisine, convenience, and more choices. Um, and it's, it's not no longer synonymous with poor, poor quality and unhealthy items. I think they'll stay very strong and continue to grow. Uh, And and in addition to filling home refrigerators, frozen foods are now proliferating at restaurants. So restaurants are buying frozen foods and utilizing them for their menus. At the same time, restaurants are providing new menu items for frozen. So it's a a symbiotic relationship there. Um, Frozen pizza has just gone absolutely wild. You know, Martha Stewart, has a new line of frozen products. So that's good news for the industry and for the product line. And even Feel Good Foods has a gluten-free frozen products as well. Um, further driving growth, 72% of frozen food consumers combine frozen and fresh vegetables. So, you know, there's a, there's a trend now of, of the, the combination of the two, which is great to see. Um, I mentioned frozen pizza sales, have risen steadily up from about 5 billion in 19 projected to be uh 6 billion this year. So, you know, really growing nicely. Um, and then big companies are getting into this as well, beyond meat launched, uh, plant-based sausage, um, chickpea crust from bond Banza, uh, harvest pizza bowls from Nutrisystem and Netsley's the journal cross Mac Mac and cheese pizza. Um, So, you know, this is really, uh, it's growing. Daily Harvest, a company that specializes in frozen food products, including ready-to-blend smoothies, is now valued at $1 billion. So this is a category that will not only stick but grow very nicely.
0: I think one of the things that's really struck me in the last couple of years is just, like, the proliferation of frozen uh, entrees in the private label sector. So you can go from anywhere, you know, you can go to your discount grocer, like Aldi or Lidl. You could go to a regional, like say Shoprite, if you're on the East coast over here, or even nationals like Kroger and, you know, some of the brands under Albertsons, they have this wide variety of frozen items, like you're saying. And I find it so interesting because, you know, back in the day, it was really just, you could get frozen vegetables under that brand and that was about it. Right. So it's really interesting to see how private label is playing a part in this too, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I think private label is another area that will continue to grow. And <clears throat> I believe that at some point in unit sales, they will outstrip
0: the, uh, the major brands. Now, I would not um, disagree with that, especially considering how many different varieties they have of it. You know, pizza is a great example, right? There's a ton of private label pizza products as well that instead of just having one cheese pizza, I know at a couple of local grocers here, you know, there's four or five different varieties of those frozen pizzas. So it'd be real interesting to track that in the coming year. For sure. All right. So I think another thing I'd like to talk about here, kind of playing off that frozen food restaurant item you had, but I think restaurants had to get creative because of the pandemic. I think that's been reported to death. But what we've seen since 2020 is outdoor dining, ghost kitchens, delivery, and more are really becoming central to food service operations, which before the pandemic were really kind of on the outskirts of what they were doing as a business, maybe more of an add on than uh, part of their core business model. So I was just wondering how you see these kind of operating as the pandemic subsides and ends. I know eventually we're going to get through this period. So what kind of items from that list stick, what kind of stuff goes back to the back burner, you know, basically what's your perspective on how restaurants are going to operate going forward?
1: Interesting. Um, well, you know, I think delivery and, and takeout, uh, have hit new highs and I I believe that they will continue to to grow. Um, You know, there's been a little bit of the slowdown in in the delivery uh, aspect because people are now, you know, dining in again. But I I think these are definitely trends that will stay. Um, Ghost kitchens is another interesting one. Um, There's been, you know, pluses and minuses there. There's some issues that have come up recently about ghost kitchens, but I believe that that's a valuable concept that uh, will, you know, also proliferate in the future. in fact, there's uh, a group called Alliance Kitchens, which took in a bunch of different brands and operating out of one ghost kitchen, which is, I think, uh, probably a a prototype of what will happen down the road. Uh, I think outdoor dining will continue. Uh, I think, you know, people are used to that and, and like it. Uh, They're coming up with innovative ways with these little bubbles and the heaters and a bunch of things for the the, the northeast and and colder areas. So uh, I I think that will continue as well, Uh, particularly since millennials and Gen Z adults uh, tapped takeout and delivery for dinner at higher rates than older generations. So I I think that will also, you know, uh, propel it. Um, So I, I really think these will definitely continue.
0: Yeah, the ghost kitchen thing is interesting. I recently did an article for the Food Institute kind of taking a look at uh, fat brands and then also RBI making those acquired uh, acquisitions recently. And I kind of asked the question, is this for these kinds of ghost kitchens? I believe Alliance was all Inspire brands down there. So definitely could be interesting to see how these uh, concepts kind of make it quick and easy to get, you know, Taco Bell and KFC delivered to you really quickly or any of those other kind of combinations under the uh, parent brand. So I would agree. And as an avid delivery, uh, you know, user myself, I would also say, you know, the millennial generation is probably going to keep up with that. That convenience aspect is really key. And, sure. and I think, you know, one of the things that I missed and we were talking real quick before this, how, you know, Thanksgiving really kind of felt a little bit more normal this year getting to see people compared to last year and one of the things that i really enjoyed this year as we're getting back to it, like that new normal is being able to go out to restaurants and having that experience of being waited on uh you know the service aspect of it all but i also think that people really want convenience so i feel we have two different kind of forces here right we have that experiential desire but also that want for convenience so i'm wondering how do you think restaurants can supply both of those to hungry consumers do you think that they're going to have you know, streamlined operations that focus on one or the other? Or do you think, uh, you know, a restaurant operation can really deliver, you know, directly to the consumer, but also have that experiential part as well?
1: Well, you know, I think that, you know, ghost kitchens, um, takeout, delivery, out, outdoor dining, uh, also full ingredients to cook meals at home. That's a, a, another area that, that seems to be taking off. But while labor and food costs uh, such high concerns right now. Uh, you know, I, I think restaurants have to focus on these kind of things. And I think that ghost kitchens can allow restaurants to operate more efficiently and add to their bottom lines. Um, I think that delivery and takeout will continue to increase, but it's a very tight market right now. and There's going to be some shakeup there. I think manufactured kits uh, will also reduce some costs. and And outdoor dining clearly, in my opinion, will, will, will be there to enhance the, uh, the in-person experience, if you will. The problem I see is analyzing the cost of delivery, ordering platforms, brick and mortar rents, labor, food and beverage, technology promotions and customer loyalty programs, it can be very tricky now. So, you know, a, a restaurateur looking at which way to go and how to navigate their way through these things have, has to really analyze all of these different factors to, to be really successful today.
0: Yeah, I kind of think that we might see a little bit more, uh, you know, targeting different niche categories, right? Instead of just being the best at making wings, maybe you're the best at delivering wings versus the best at serving wings. I do think we'll see that kind of specialization because I do think, you know, we're seeing different types of consumers out there. And as the technology gets a little bit more, you know, available, I think people will be able to get that customized experience a little bit more easily. Yeah, so you
1: know, yes, and companies are trying different things. You know, KFC has a grab and go, McDonald's has a, a new partnership with Uber Eats and DoorDash, so, you know, they, Companies are responding to this, and and I think it'll be around.
0: And the last category I wanted to talk about today, Lou, is just direct consumer, which is another category which obviously exploded during the early days of the pandemic. So I was wondering if you expect to see that segment continuing to grow in 2022 and beyond, and basically just a little bit of your prospectus for that uh, category as we enter the new year.
1: Well, you know, 73% of consumers bought groceries uh, recently online, so this is a category near and dear to my heart. Uh, I believe that manufacturers will begin to utilize this more and more. I was recently on with an executive from Pepsi talking about their approach uh, of launching new products. And you know all of the large manufacturers are really looking at this, this area to direct to consumers as to how they can you know, take advantage of this online purchasing that's going on. With that, I think there'll be further pressure on retailers who generally, you know, sell the products to consumers, uh, but they're not standing still. I'll get to that in a second. And distributors, who are the middlemen? You know, they're the people that get the, 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 the products from the manufacturers and then get them to the retailers so they can get to the consumers. Uh, even farmers are employing direct-to-consumers. So it goes all the way back to, you know, very basic supply chain. So everybody's taking part in this phenomenon. And, you know, the CPG companies can make up for the additional shipping costs that they'll incur with great logistics systems. And they need great logistics systems because you're dealing with, you know, consumers all throughout the country. Um, it will allow for fewer coupons and slotting fees. Uh, it would increase margins. And consumers will eventually win uh, uh, with this. It'll, it'll cost less to consumers. So it's a win-win. It eliminates layers of cost to the consumers. Um, who loses? Well, I think distributors would have to shift more to the food service sector, which is restaurants and you know eating and drinking facilities, and retailers could lose some revenue. You know from this, I, I don't think it's going to be a win-win for those two sectors. Um, but brick-and-mortar retail is growing its ability to serve customers through through e- e-commerce. Stores are not standing still. During the pandemic, retailers grew online sales through curbside and delivery. They also pumped out private label, which we've already talked about. After launching Bowl and Basket, excuse me, Foods and and Paperbird household products, Shoprite, for example, has been making a push to expand in private label. And even as brands transform with tech, retailers such as Kroger are taking bold steps to affiliate with and acquire technology. And I mentioned before, Kroger teamed with tech company Ocado to build robotic fulfillment centers. So. You know nobody's standing still in this in this particular arena and i think direct to consumer will continue to proliferate uh as online you know ordering and, and sales continue to grow
0: well it's certainly going to be an interesting year to watch the food industry as it grows uh lou i guess one last question for you would just be you know if anyone's interested in learning a little bit more about markham where should they go
1: so uh, markham has a you know a pretty extensive website it's m a r c u m l l p dot com uh it, there's a number of different industries that we focus on uh and if you go to the website and and go to the food and beverage industry section we have a bunch of articles there a lot of you know valuable information there's tax information there's advisory service information technology just a bunch of stuff that i think is you know would be helpful uh not only to the food and beverage industry but other industries as well so Uh, Please feel free to to uh, view our website. You can reach me directly through the website and I'm happy to uh, talk
0: to anyone and help in any way that we can. That's perfect. And what we'll do is we'll uh, provide a direct link to the food and beverages services page with Markham in the bottom of this episode description. So you can take a look for it there if you're looking for it. But I think that's going to bring us to a close of this edition of the Food Institute podcast. I just want to thank Lou again for spending some time with us today. Lou, it's always a pleasure. Markham's a great partner with the Food Institute, so thanks for everything you guys do with us.
1: Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it, and uh, have a happy holiday season.
0: And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Food Institute podcast. Please follow, like, and share, and make sure you stay safe out there. This is Chris Campbell, signing off.